Hey friends, welcome to the Redeemer Queen's Park podcast. Redeemer exists to help connect Jesus to people, people to community, and community to mission. We're gathering on Saturdays at 3 p.m. to worship God and fellowship. If you ever have any questions, or if we could be of help in any way at all, then please give us a shout at hello at redeemerqp.com. We hope you'll be encouraged as you hear another one of our Bible talks. Let's listen to the next episode. I had all this, I had like thought to say something like, oh, like you, there must be something that uh, you've gotten that tells people not to come when David's preaching. But then everyone came, but then they all went outside to, to help with the kids. So uh, I'm going back to the beginning and saying no. Uh, but that, thank you for being here. Um, it is glorious outside. So stopping and coming inside for a bit uh, to listen to me talk is, is a special privilege. So uh, thanks for being here. Um, we are talking about Ephesians. We're continuing from last week, though we didn't spend a lot of time in Ephesians last week. Uh, if you were here, we talked about context of Ephesians. So we looked at Acts, which is more like the historical story of how Paul got to uh, Ephesus and the city and what happened there. Uh, so if you're here for that, that was helpful uh, for what we're coming into. But part of uh, what we're looking at in, in Ephesians in the kind of life of Redeemer as a church. Um, Thomas mentioned this last week. There's, there's different seasons that we go through kind of in the Christian calendar, uh, ones that you know well, maybe Advent kind of leading up to Christmas, um, you know, Passover kind of uh, between Easter and um, Passover. And, um, but then there's all these other times. Technically, in the Christian calendar, this time is called normal time or like regular time. Uh, which isn't that super exciting, except that um, all time is nice. But uh, for our purposes, we're kind of dividing it in two, and we're going to spend some time thinking about uh, fellowship and gathering together and unity as a church. Uh, And then when we get back from holiday in September, it'll be more like discipleship and personal uh, growth uh, in Jesus. So here we are, we're talking about Uh, fellowship and thinking about ourselves as part of a small group called the church, uh, well, called a church, part of the bigger church. Um, But that's where we are. So last week, as I said, we considered the context of of the book, uh, Ephesians, which is Paul's letter to the church there in Ephesus. Um, And we'll continue, we'll actually look at what he says to them uh, a bit today. If I can turn my page, it'll be helpful. Um, So we saw last week that the city of Ephesus uh, was an influential trading kind of commercial merchant hub uh, at the crossroads of the ancient kind of east and west, Um, had been at various times controlled by uh, Greece and then Rome. And and so we find them kind of as a a Roman city during uh, Paul's time. Uh, Roman Ephesus probably had a population between 75 and 150,000 people, which uh, at the time made it the third largest city in kind of Roman Asia. Um, And therefore, uh, for reference, you know, London is the third largest city in Europe, um, which, you know, that counts Istanbul and Moscow. Uh, And so you think of like the level of influence that a city like Ephesus would have, you can kind of use that as as a marker. Right, so it's a big, important city. A lot of people coming through. If you know it, it's on the kind of on the coast. It was a port city, kind of between main parts of Rome and Greece, and then out into Asia. So there would be 
trade that would come in and then carry on. So you've got transient population, you've got people that come from different parts of the world, uh, obviously people there to make money, people there to do different things. So it's inf influential and it's important. And because of that nature, you have got different uh, powers in the region, uh, a variety of popular religions and belief systems had grown up there. Uh, from the text, we know obviously that there was a synagogue where Paul went in and began teaching, uh, but also we know that there was a, a temple dedicated to the Greek goddess Artemis or her Roman counterpart, Diana, uh, which was so grand that it's actually listed as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This is an amazing, humongous, you know, very uh, impressive temple built by the Greeks. And so we look at this and as Paul establishes his church there, uh, and then in this context later writes to encourage that same church, uh, this is what we're looking at. It's a multicultural, you know, at that time, modern uh, city with people of means, people with power, uh, people who think of themselves as being enlightened, right? Because they live in this modern city, uh, a place not unlike the one where we find ourselves today. So uh, for help to see where we're going, uh, we're going to look at the text, uh, verses 3 to 14. We're going to see what Paul says, and then we're going to consider you know, what he means by it, why he says it to this group of people. So let's look at it. What is Paul saying? So Paul writes this letter to the church. In, in verse 1, he says, uh, to the holy people in Ephesus, uh, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And he's encouraging them uh, to and urging them to live a life worthy of the calling from God that they have received. So as Christians, identifying with the church, Paul is encouraging them uh, to do that. We find that later in, in the book, but for now, that's helpful. So after this brief introduction of verses 1 and 2, he launches in to verse 3, uh, into this moment. He begins this uh, letter with, um, with a traditional Hebrew blessing. And so you might be familiar with this more than, more than you know, uh, if you've ever uh, heard or seen someone pray like before a meal, uh, like a traditional uh, Jewish blessing before a meal is, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth bread from the earth. Uh, they used to write that on the uh, the thing that they put the uh, silverware in at Chewy's um, in, in Texas. But, um, and so I would read that. Uh, we would alternate which prayers we would say. Sometimes I do the Jewish one because it's fun. Um, but anyway, Paul starts in the same way. He says, praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he kind of mixes it up, makes it an emphasis on God being the Father of Jesus Christ, who's the one that we're uh, here for. But so he, so he starts into this blessing and then he just gets carried away. He gets really excited. Uh, famously, in the original Greek, the verses that we're reading, 3 to 14, are actually one long sentence. It's like 200 plus words long. Uh, and it just runs on and on and on. And he, because he's just like, he starts talking and just can't help himself but to keep going because it, it's so exciting. Helpfully, the translators who moved it into English broke it into eight different sentences, uh, helping make it a bit more approachable uh, and easy to follow. But Paul opens this, and this whole thing, he's reminding the church in Ephesus uh, who they are uh, and what God has done through Jesus. And so he starts, he says, uh, in verse 3, he says, Praise be to God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then he says, You have been chosen 
before creation. You've been adopted on purpose. Uh, you've been redeemed by Jesus. You've been forgiven of sin, verse 7. Lavished with grace, verse 8. Revealed of the truth of the mystery, in verse 9. You've been purposed for his glory, in verse 12. Promised the Holy Spirit, in verse 13. And guaranteed an inheritance, in verse 14. Right? Look at this list of things that's up there, yeah? List of things. Um, what an amazing thing to be reminded of, right? You can understand where Paul is, is getting excited here. So he starts with this thing and he says, Paul says, we have been blessed that Jesus Christ has blessed us. Oh, we'll say God, father of Jesus has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, every spiritual blessing. And in Christ, these are Christ's blessings that are now given on to us, right? So that's special. And, and, and you say, really? Every spiritual blessing? That's what he says. He says, yes, every spiritual blessing. And he goes on to list this thing, this list. It's not all of them, but he, he lists a bunch. And, and what we have is basically the top three uh, blessings that we receive in Christ. Uh, Camden likes to rank things. And uh, he's always asking me, like, what's your top three, top five, such and such, right? It doesn't matter what it is. It could be uh, places to eat, teams that are not, you know, not from the United States or, you know, all kinds of random stuff. And we're ranking all the time. And this is helpful because here's your top list of blessings that come from, uh, from Jesus. So number one, we have, you've been blessed or you've been chosen and adopted by God. Number two, you were redeemed for unity by Jesus. And number three, you've been guaranteed an inheritance by the Holy Spirit. So if you're wondering, you know, what, what do we get by placing our faith in Jesus, right? What are the, what are the benefits? Here's a, here's a short list of pretty top benefits. Um, and we'll start, we'll look at each of these one by one. But So verse four, he says, For he chose us in him before creation of the world, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will and to the praise of his glorious grace for which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Right? If you have believed in Christ and you trust him to direct your life through the wisdom of his word and the guidance of his spirit, the verse says he chose you and he adopted you. Now, if this language, uh, there's a word in there that gets a bit prickly uh, called predestined. If this is confusing to you, or you struggle with this, or you've, you know, read a bunch of different things, uh, you're certainly not the first one to consider that and, and wonder what he means by that. And you won't be the last. Uh, some of you may have sat up in your chair and waiting for me to, like, give you the, the final answer, the final word on this. Uh, and as much as I would like to do that, put the debate to bed, uh, I can't do that. But I also won't try. And not today, at least, because that's not the point. The point, uh, what I want us to see what I want us to be amazed at in looking at these verses is that God chose you in this way, that he adopted you, that he adopts us to sonship through Jesus. How amazing is that? And, and I'm going to help you, ex I'm going to help explain how amazing that is. And hopefully you walk out of here and you're amazed at what that means for you. The concept of adoption that we know in on the earth, right? Human, you know, adoption of children. 
right? It's it's quite possibly one of the most beautiful things I could ever imagine, like us doing and seeing in uh, in life, right? You, a family, a a couple of parents, they choose to bring a child that they didn't create, they didn't they didn't come from them, and they choose to go get that child, and that that some other person, possibly unknown person, bore into the world, and they invite them into their home. And not just their home, they invite them into their life. And not just their life, they invite them into their family. They actually begin to call a child that's not theirs, their son or daughter, uh, just as if it was a biological child of their own, right? And given the same rights, the same privileges, the same honor uh, as, as a child that would have been born in, in the traditional biological manner. In this, it's incredibly beautiful, right? The, the child has uh, no special sense. Like there's no reason that you would adopt the child. It doesn't do anything special. Often it's an infant. You don't know anything about it. Other times uh, it's older and, and therefore you know something about it. And still someone chooses to bring that child into their family. I mean, it's, it's unbelievably beautiful. And of course, there's an initial decision. <laughs> There's an initial decision to adopt, and then there's the legal ceremonial moment of adoption where everything then becomes official, and those are momentous occasions that should be celebrated, um, and we remember them and and celebrate them as if it's the birth or or other times, Uh, but then life goes on. Mom and dad go back to work. The kids go to school. They start their after-school clubs, their sports, their activities. Uh, You go on living together in the same house, and anyone who has a sibling or a child or a parent knows that living in the same house around the same people at the same time creates conflict and challenge and friction, right? So you have these same experience that every family experiences, the difficulties of life, the, the struggle of living in the world as sinful people, living in and around and with other sinful people in a broken society that doesn't run perfectly. And there's so many things that then enter into the world. And the reality is that while no set of parents get it right every time. Um, when you have children in your home, you know, by and large, you want the best for them and you make sacrifices to care for them, right? You, you, um, you do what it takes to give them what they need, right? And it's not perfect. You don't get it right every time, but by and large, even, even like mediocre parents by, by any standard, are making massive sacrifices and doing m- massive things in order to take care of a child, regardless, right? You can be bad at it, and you're still giving of yourself daily in order to keep the child alive and moving forward in the world, right? And so what the truth is, every day as a parent, you're choosing to do that. You're choosing to love your child. You're making a choice to love them every single day. And this is what it means to be a parent. This is what it means to be a father is I'm going to choose to take care of you. I'm going to choose to go that. And this is what I want us to see about what God has done. He chooses to love us every day. No matter who we are and what we've done or where we've gone, how we've cursed him in the past, he chooses to love us. He wants the best for us. He made the ultimate sacrifice for our good. He calls us son or daughter and not because we are particularly worthy of loving or special in any way, but because he chooses to do so. That's the only thing. He's chosen to
to say, I love you and I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to be there, right? And I know we in this room, uh, it's not as big of a room as maybe it could have been, but in this room, there's a wide variety of uh, experiences and uh, we have different types of parents and fathers on our own. And no matter what experience you've had with your own earthly father, uh, I'll show you this. God is the best father you could ever ask for. He provides for our daily needs, pardons us of our sins, protects us from harm, lovingly disciplines us in the way we should go. He's always kind. He's always patient. He listens to our prayers and our pleas. He's never sleepy, never forgetful, never gets drunk. Uh, he's never grumpy or disinterested in what you have to say. He never, he's never powerless to help, and he's never unsure of what to do, right? He's there for us all the time. He's the perfect father, and he's there, and he chooses us, and he chooses to adopt us on purpose. It wasn't an accident. Uh, it was in accordance with his pleasure and will, verse 5. Why? And to the praise of his glorious grace. And get this, which he gives to us in Jesus, right? The grace that he gives to us is in Jesus, right? All of this. And so you can see, unbelievable, praise God. This is what it means to be a Christian. Being considered a child of God is the absolute top blessing uh, that you can receive. And you can see why Paul gets so excited and just keeps going and makes this sentence. He's, I mean, he's, he's recognizing how amazing that this fact is. And he's saying that God of the universe, God that created everything, has chosen to make me a son and call me a son and treat me as such and bring me into his family. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. But he doesn't stop there. It's the, there's, a, there's an additional blessing. He, start, he keeps going, and the, and the next blessing that he has is that we are redeemed through the blood of Jesus. Redeemed by Jesus. It says in verse 7, in him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in the accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished upon us. With wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he proposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. It's redeemed by Jesus. If you're familiar, unfamiliar with the Bible, if you're new to reading the Bible, uh, if you're new to Christianity, there's this like blood language that sometimes can be off-putting. It might seem a little odd, maybe unnecessary. Uh, if you're brand new, it might even seem like, why does he keep talking about blood? That's gross. Um, but the reality is when we read this, we're supposed to pick up on the symbolism that he's carrying to find its full meaning. And it says, when Paul talks about redemption through his blood, he's calling back to a historical redemption for the Hebrew people that most of us will know it happened back when they were held in captivity in Egypt some 1,300 years before writing this. And they were liberated and redeemed from slavery under the Egyptian Pharaoh through the blood of the sacrificed Passover lamb, right? So this should mean something. Paul later explains in the next chapter uh, that we are currently enslaved by a few things. One, the grip of our culture. He calls it the ways of the world. Uh, and we've, we're, we're held into the grip. Number two, the influence of an alternate power, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And number three, 
we're under the compulsion to satisfy our own desires, uh, desires of our flesh, right? So if we're honest with ourselves, we can recognize that all of these masters, uh, they keep us in captivity. We're actually slaves to these. And this is what Paul is saying. Think of uh, typical, simple reasons or excuses that we give for our shortcomings, our failings, uh, the times when we fall short, miss the mark. Uh, Bible calls that sin, right? We might say, I mean, everyone does it. Like, I'm not, I know, like, maybe I shouldn't, but the, everyone's kind of going in this direction, right? Or, you know, I don't want to seem too weird. I'm, I'm just going to, like, carry on and not make mention up, right? That's the grip of the culture, right? And that's a simple way. But, like, there is this, like, pressure this like cultural, the world is moving a certain way. I can't go a different way. That would make me seem odd, right? And so there's this like grip on us, right? Especially if you're not in Christ, right? There's that grip that would hold you there, right? Or, or so you might say, uh, I couldn't help it. You know, I just, it, it just happened. I didn't even think, right? And it, some, some, so this idea of like a lack of agency, like I don't have control over my life. Well, what is that admitting to? that something else is controlling me, right? And then maybe finally, oh, I, I just really, really wanted to do that or uh, it felt good or, you know, I can't believe that something that feels so good could be wrong. Like, how would that be the case, right? And so you've got this like compulsion to uh, give in to the desires of your heart, the, 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 the fleshly desires in us, right? And those are simple but can you see how all of these have a grip on us and how it might be uh, hard to escape their grasp? In Jesus, we're redeemed and, and Jesus says we can live differently from the world. We don't have to follow the path and the pressure of the way the culture is going. And Jesus, we can say, we resist the power and the lies of this other power of Satan who's saying, you know, do this, do this, be this way. In, in Jesus, we can recognize the temptations of our flesh and resist them because we know that our flesh, our, our feelings lie to us and tell us things that aren't true. And you might be looking at this and say, well, I mean, there's no way I could do that. If, you, if, you don't, if you're not uh, following Jesus, right, you're like, there's no way I can not do those things. And of course you can't. None of us can, not by ourselves. Uh, we need Jesus. And we need his redemption. And so how does this happen, right? If we go back to the Exodus account that Paul is recalling, it shows us that there was this Passover lamb that when sacrificed in the place of every Israelite son, right? Um, and that the blood of that lamb is painted on the doorframe of the home, right? And when God saw that death had already occurred, his judgment would pass over, literally pass over to the next home and go, go on. Right? And that's, the, that's how the Israelites were uh, freed in Egypt. Right? There was this moment of Passover. Right? And it's similar now for Christians. We trust in Jesus who was sacrificed in our place on the cross. We were protected by his blood as if it were painted on the doorframe of our lives. And God's judgment now passes over us because it's already fallen on Jesus on the cross. This is the glory of the gospel of Jesus. Right? This is the crux of what we believe in. And the redemption of Jesus is absolutely paramount with sonship to, uh, to God as the, the top blessings that we are given as Christians, as followers 
of this God and of this Jesus. Like this is what we get. We get freedom from captivity and we get uh, to be sons and daughters of God. It's unbelievable. And it's been said, it's been I'm getting worked up. I need to take a second. Relax a little bit. No. Uh, it's been said that for God to allow such a sacrifice for our sins is grace. For God to provide to provide that sacrifice for our sins is amazing grace. And for God to become the sacrifice that saves us from our sins is grace that we could never believe. It's unbelievable. It's beyond what we could imagine. And so verse 7 says the forgiveness of our sins, it's like God has pressed delete on the record of our sins, right? If you had a document on uh, the computer and you highlight the whole thing and you press delete and it's gone, uh, that's what it's like. And this is like, you know, before there was a backup cloud, right? This was like when I was in high school and you accidentally hit delete and it's literally gone forever and you can't get it back, like accidentally did that. And now you've got to rewrite that whole essay again, right? The we remember that? That's the kind of delete we're talking about. There's no backup. There's no cloud that you can recover from. It's gone. Delete. And then we keep reading and he says, uh, he does it in accordance with the riches of his grace. God is wealthy. He's unbelievably wealthy in grace. It's overflowing out of him. His kindness has no end. Uh, and, and just in case you were concerned that this is the only place that this happens, right? It's repeated in other places. Paul himself says in Romans 2 uh, that the riches of his kindness, of his forbearance and his patience um, is intended to lead you to repentance. That it's the richness of his grace is beyond our imagination. And that's what leads to forgiveness and that's what leads to sonship. And so not only are we adopted into his family, redeemed out of captivity by Jesus, the third great blessing that we see here is that we are guaranteed an inheritance by the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, it says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. When you believed, that's the, the words right there. It means as soon as you believe, as soon as someone believes and trusts God with their life, the spirit is given immediately. There's no waiting period. There's no like uh, vesting, right? It comes immediately. Um, there are no levels to work your way through. You get a little spirit and then you work up to level two and you get a little more spirit. No, it's just the spirit comes. Um, and as soon as you believe, it's given to you. And of course, as the spirit works in you, your life looks different over time. The spirit uh, works and does things and you become to look more and more like Jesus. You, uh, the way you look at the world changes, the way you interact with your friends, your family, your boss, uh, your kids, all those things change, uh, and that's the Spirit in you moving to start that process. And the Spirit is, it says he's given as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. The Spirit is God's down payment to us. And he says, you know, here, 
take this, uh, let it carry you through, give you what you need until I return and I give you the full inheritance of eternity, right? Some of you are much better at planning uh, than I am. And you, you know, you think about your summer holiday like a year in advance, right? And so you book that, that holiday home in Spain or Greece or wherever you're going and it's like a year ahead. And so they, they say, well, you need to put a deposit down. And so you're like, all right, whatever that is, 10% of the total, some number. And um, you book that home and you send them the amount of deposit to hold that date for you. But then as you get closer, the years go by, the year hopefully goes by, you get closer to the trip, you pay the balance and you get full use of the home, right? You paid the deposit to guarantee to the owner that you would indeed come through with the remainder of that payment. And this is what God is doing. He gives you the spirit. He says, guarantee, I'm coming back. I'm going to give you the rest, right? Here's, here's a little bit uh, and I'll give you everything in just a little while. And yet in that, the spirit is wonderful in its own right. We just spent six weeks talking about the Holy Spirit and all of the things that come with that. And, uh, and above all that, it's a present to hold us over until we get the big one, right? Until we see God, we live with him and we're there eternally and we don't have this separation, right? The spirit is our, our now, but in eternity, we get everything. We get to be with him in, in fullness of time. So Paul is sending the letter to the church, the faithful in Ephesus, to encourage them and to strengthen them, to give them resolve to live for Christ in the city. He launches into this long sentence to remind them what God has done and who they are in Christ because of it. I think like uh, I wrote it down, but I didn't put it in here. It's like 14 times in these verses, uh, Paul says in Christ. And then like another four or five times he says through Christ right? He's, he's telling you like, this is who you are. You're in Christ. You're a son of God. Uh, we, you've been redeemed and you have the spirit and we've been given every spiritual blessing. I still can't get over that one. Every spiritual blessing? Yes, every spiritual blessing in Christ through Jesus. And we've been adopted as sons. We've been redeemed by Jesus. We've been guaranteed through the spirit. So why, why does Paul say this? Like, well, He goes through this big thing to remind us who we are, to tell us all this stuff. And, you know, ultimately as believers, like we should kind of already know it. It it should be a reminder. It should be something coming back and saying, okay, remember, remember this. Remember what God did. Remember how Jesus redeemed you, right? Remember that he gave you the spirit and you you felt that come on when you believed. And it's like, this was a new thing, right? So remember that. So why would he, why is he doing this? Why would he start his letter you know, there's, there's, there's five other chapters after this. Uh, he didn't write them in chapters, but there's, five, there's more uh, after this bit. And so why would he put it there? And so we look into the, the rest of the letter and we'll see it uh, kind of over the next few weeks as we consider it. But, but one of the messages that Paul has for, his ch- for the church in Ephesus is he's, he's looking to bring the church in Ephesus a message of unity. Unity in the church, which itself is an outgrowth of personal unity with Christ. He says it in verse 10. He says, uh, you know, you're redeemed by Jesus. Uh, verse 10 says that this was all to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. In verse 14, he says that it was to the praise of his glory. Paul knows that the believers in Ephesus, just as the believers in, in London, uh, the believers in most of your cities, if you're not from London, right, that, that, 
believers live as a minority culture that's running after everything, like the, the culture is running after everything but Jesus. They're going the other way. And so there's this like salmon of believers trying to go the opposite way. And that's challenging and that's hard and it wears you down. And so Paul is writing into this saying, here's some strength, here's some security, right? Be reminded who you are, but it should spur you up to strengthen each other. And so the church needs unity amongst each other in order to survive and maintain the faith. One of the things that I love about living in London uh, as compared to where we lived in the States is uh, there are just less believers. And it seems weird that that's something I love about it. But the reality is there's much less um, kind of internal division around little things that don't matter that much because we recognize that there's like only a few of us here. And so we can look across an aisle of someone that's from like a slightly different stream of faith that like maybe thinks differently about little things that don't matter that much. And we can say like, those things actually don't matter that much. And we can like venture together to do the things that do matter, right? To, to proclaim the name of Jesus and to be, to be the church in the city. It's unbelievable. And that's, that's the context that he's looking at. He says like, don't let little things get in your way be unified as a church, right? Obviously church across the city, yes. Church in this room, even more so, right? Don't let little things become a problem. He says, um, you know, strengthen each other, hold fast to one another in order to survive and maintain. It's one of the reasons we have uh, community groups and small groups throughout the week, because a whole week out in the world is a challenge. We need time in between to be encouraged, to be reminded to, to see someone else that's, that's going through similar struggles, to pray for each other and to move forward, right? Saturday is not enough. Saturday and Wednesday is not enough, right? We need each other uh, throughout the week. But uh, funny enough, Paul, he doesn't just speak to unity within the church, uh, but you need unity in all things. Uh, in fact, uh, unity of the church should be the primary way that those outside of it find it interesting and intriguing. You believe me? Uh, how about John in chapter 13, 34 to 35? Jesus himself says, a new command I give to you, love one another, talking to the people that already trust him, love one another as I have loved you so that, um, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is here. John 17, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be crucified and he's praying and he says, Jesus, he prays for those he's leaving behind in verse 11. He says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. I'm coming to you. Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. He's asking for the same unity for us as he has with the Father. That's unbelievable. That's amazing, right? And that's what he's asking for. And then he keeps going and he prays for those who believe later i.e. those of us who sit in this room who believe in Jesus in 2023 uh, and everyone in between. In verses 20 to 23, he says, My prayer is not for them alone, but I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. 
that's, that's pretty crazy that how this works, our unity with each other and with God is what the world outside will look at and say, you know what, that might be true. And you can see how it would work the other way, right? If we're at each other's throats, if we're fighting each other, the world looks at it and says, well, those guys are no different than us. They can't even figure out what they believe in. They just want to fight, right? And we see the, the facts and truth of that on the news and in the world right now. Unity is important. In Ephesians, later in this book, he said, Paul says um, that his role was to preach to the Gentiles so that they could understand the mystery of Christ and God's intent. This is now a quote. Intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in chapter four, he continues, he says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the son of God to become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This unity thing is a big deal and it's Paul's message. And the way he gets there, he, so he, the rest of this book, a lot of it, starts talking about uh, practical tips on what Christians can do and should do uh, to live lives worthy of the calling, create an environment that would build unity in the church. It says, put off the old self, speak truth, be angry and do not sin, don't steal, work with your hands. I mean, meaning don't be idle. You don't have to be like a, a woodworker, but like do something. Uh, speak wholesomely, be kind and compassionate, forgive one another, submit to one another in reverence for Christ, and so on and so on and so on. But what Paul does here at the beginning, he says, in order to do any of those things, in order to find unity, in order to live in a way that would build unity, you need to know who you are. You need to recognize what God has done and who he's made you. And he says, so, so, so we look at this and we're like, man, in 2023, living here, reading this text, trying to understand what do you have for me, God? Why would I, why would I care about this? He says this, remember and be amazed at who we are in Christ. Don't forget these things. Don't forget that God made you a son or a daughter of his. Don't forget that Jesus redeemed you out of captivity to the things of the world. Don't forget that God gave you the spirit of power to live in you and give you what you need every single day. And that it's a a guarantee of a future promise that he's already promised to us. Don't forget that. Know who you are. You're my son, you're my daughter. And then he says, because of that, be united to Christ and to one another as brothers and sisters sharing in these blessings, all the spiritual blessings to be a blessing to each other and our neighbors for his glory. This is the message of the first little bit of Ephesians, right? He's got more to say, but we have to start here and know it. And so as we do that, let's pray. Um, Someone will come up and, you know, make make music and someone will be here to, to pray with you if you want that but let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for choosing to love me and to adopt me as your son. Even as I was far away from you and I was running the other direction, uh, and as even as I continually stray, chasing the shiny objects that the world puts in front of me. Thank you, Jesus, for redeeming me for freeing me from captivity over peer pressure, over temptation, 
and that your blood, that by your blood, that you've paid the price of my redemption. Holy Spirit, thank you for promising that we have a future, for guaranteeing my place and providing the daily power to follow in your ways. God, would the people of this church, would the people of Redeemer be filled with amazement at what you've done and who you've made us to be? Will we be marked by a special unity that only comes from being unified with Jesus? And this would speak to the city and the neighborhood around us to the praise and glory of your name alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.